Well, good morning, Applewood family. Any who might be guests with us, we are glad that you're here today. You are here on what I refer to as a tweener Sunday. Comes between a couple of things. Now, that might not bother you, but that's unnerving to me. Because, you know, I, I, I lay out my schedule, you know, and, and then here comes this Sunday between Thanksgiving and, and Advent, and what do I do with it? And by the way, Advent Sundays are Sundays of Advent, not Sundays in Advent. I know you appreciate that technical precision. You've probably been concerned that you'd get it wrong. It makes for great dinner table conversation. You know, you can obnoxiously clarify for people that, no, they are Sundays that, that belong as a part of the celebration of Advent. They just, they don't happen as an interruption of the theme of Advent. Yeah, you care. Okay, really important question for Tweener Sunday, though, is probably not important to you, but for me, what to preach on. So if you've been concerned about that, tempted to lose any sleep, no worries. I want to talk about prepping for Christmas. How does that make you feel? Yeah! Just that sense of, oh my. It's coming soon, you know. And there's just much to be done. Have you got your list of things ready? You know, you've got to decide what you're going to have on Christmas Day, if you're going to have anything on Christmas Day. Who's going to come on Christmas Day? Is the house going to be clean? Are the lights up? Is the tree up? I don't want to talk about any of that. So thankfully, what I'd like to do is zero in on a slightly different kind of preparation that I think if we are willing to engage it, we will find ourselves in the middle of those more typical kinds of Christmas preparations, maybe with a, with a greater sense of, ah, with some relief, with a sense of, uh, this is okay. It, it is what it is. No fret. Next Sunday is the beginning of Advent. We know it as a season. We're preparing for the celebration of the birth of Jesus on Christmas Day, right? That, that is what we know Advent to be. Our English word comes from the Latin word, which means coming or to come. And it's, it's the equivalent of the Greek word that's used throughout the New Testament that refers to the second coming of Jesus. Interestingly enough, it's not a word that so much emphasizes his return as it does his presence. There's, there's almost that sense in the word of, ah, he's arrived. We think of the second coming of Jesus as his return, obviously, because he left and he promised to come back. But the word really emphasizes more his presence. And I know that that can probably seem a little bit like a, a splitting of verbal hairs, but as important as his return is, it is his return that brings his bodily presence. The early church was concerned about that. We learned that as we walked through several weeks of the Apostles' Creed together. Remember, he ascended to heaven in a human body, after living his life on earth in a human body, and he will bring his presence into view when he returns again in that human 
body. Now, anyone can return from a trip, but not just anyone stirs things up by their presence. Jesus stirs things up. Stirred them up in his first bodily presence and will do so again at his second bodily presence. Here's what I find interesting. Biblical scholars believe that the early centuries of the church, there was very little, well, actually no connection between Advent and Christmas. We, we put them together. Season of Advent began to appear as best we can see sometime around the 4th century. But again, as far as we can tell, it's, it's a preparation for celebrating the Feast of the Epiphany. Now, we celebrate Epiphany, or we mark it on the calendar. It's early in January, and <clears throat> it's, it's to commemorate the Magi finding Jesus or discovering Jesus. It's often seen through the theological lens of Jesus being revealed to the Gentiles. In the early church, Epiphany was, was a day when Christians were baptized, the uh, the season, the, the Advent season, if we were to refer to it as that, was much more Lent-like. Uh, there was emphasis on fasting and prayer, being prepared for his return, his second coming. It was it's not until the Middle Ages that we find a connection between Advent and the birth of Jesus. Now, I know I probably tell you this every year, but Advent... Advent is so important. I, I just think it's, it's incredibly important, and I'm grateful that, that you as church family are, are willing to, to move through the season of Advent as we, we move toward Christmas. You know, some churches don't celebrate Advent. Now, I can't tell you that they're wrong for doing that. It's not a right or a wrong, but, but I think in not doing that, we easily deprive ourselves of, of an amazing gift. It's just kind of inconceivable for me that folks just start talking Christmas right after Thanksgiving. Advent can be a wonderful buffer, if I can say it that way, for the marketing frenzy of our culture. That's not its best reason, but, but that is a wonderful reason for Advent. You know, it was mid-October. Sharice and I walked into Costco and there they were, Christmas decorations. It was all I could do not to stand in the middle of the aisle screaming, you've got to be kidding me. Teresa was relieved that I didn't do that. She could see the struggle in my eyes. Did I mention that Advent, Advent's very important to me? It, it clarifies, I think, for me, what the Christmas season is all about. It reminds me of what the Christmas season is all about, and, and I need that. The Christmas season is all about Jesus. And so Advent gets us thinking, or potentially gets us thinking, all about Jesus from start to finish. From the start of the season to the end of the season, from historically the start of his life to the end of his life. So this morning, I'm going to assume that, that you need Advent as much as I do and invite you to consider with me some verses that 
that come from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. Now, my reason for choosing this text, uh, it's, um, it's probably familiar, especially the last part of the text. It's very, very brief. But it comes right out of the first century. Paul wrote this first letter to the Thessalonians probably somewhere around the middle of the century, AD 50, 51 is our, is our best guess. And he wrote it in a Greek culture to a church that was filled with Jews and Greeks, primarily Greeks, that did not give a hoot about Christianity before they became followers of Jesus. It was a time in which Advent was not on the church calendar, in terms of something that that we marked on a yearly basis, but there was great passion for the second coming of Jesus. That was real. And that was a concern in the lives of the Thessalonians. So, if you will, it's kind of an Advent text through the, the, the lens of the early church in terms of what Advent was connected with, the second coming of Christ, even though Advent wasn't a season on the calendar. Did that make any sense at all? So, the gospel had taken root among a group of people in Thessalonica, And what really had them charged up was the truth that Jesus was returning. He'd been gone at that point for approximately 20 years. And they were living as if his return was imminent and that it would happen any day. But as time went by, he wasn't showing up. And more time went by. And then there were those in the congregation who lost people that they loved and they had expected that that Jesus would be returning somehow while they were just all alive and it would be this great celebration and party together and persecution was growing. And so they were a group of Christians living in this Greek culture that cared less about Jesus and what Christians believed and they were becoming discouraged. They were being persecuted increasingly and they were concerned that maybe his advent, his second coming, was not going to happen. And so Paul wrote this letter to encourage them, remind them that God's timeline is is not theirs, and to keep living as if Jesus is coming very soon. So let's stand together and uh, read through these words from the letter of Paul to the Thessalonians. Here we go. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who fall asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we will tell you that we who are still alive who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who've fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with a voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. 
Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. A teacher asked her students one day to write down what they thought were the present seven wonders of the world. And she had listed a number of sites, and the students were to, to vote on them, to add any others that maybe she hadn't listed, and they were all going to kind of vote on, on which they thought were the correct ones. And some that were listed were, you know, Egypt's Great Pyramids and the Taj Mahal and Grand Canyon and... Even the Empire State Building was listed. And while, uh, while gathering the papers, she noticed that, that one student had not turned her paper in yet. And she asked the girl if she was having trouble with her list. And the girl replied, yes, yes, I am. I, I couldn't quite make up my mind because there were so many, she said. The teacher said, well, why don't you tell us what you have? And, and maybe we can help you. The girl hesitated. And then she read this. I think the seven wonders of the world are to see, to hear, to touch, to taste, to feel, to laugh, and to love. Isn't that amazing? I think using the Advent season as preparation for Christmas Day, and, and, and who among us, if we're followers of Jesus, is going to argue about the significance and the wonder and the beauty and the importance of Christmas Day? If we're willing to engage Advent as preparation for that day, I think doing so is a way to help us make sure that we arrive at Christmas fully appreciating the beauty and the wonder of all that Christmas means. And don't you want that? I do. Every year it just seems like, you know, the, the hustle and, 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 the, and the planning and the details, they, they can squeeze out that sense of, oh, wow, this is amazing. How many times... Have I sat in the room with the Christmas tree the day after Christmas is over and thought, I did it again. I did it again. I didn't really take time. I didn't, I didn't, really, I didn't really ponder. I didn't spend any time in wonder. To have the mindset of that little girl whose, whose soul was gripped by the beauty and wonder of something 
even more amazing than what others say are the greatest wonders of the world. And I believe that one way to do that is to give attention throughout the season to, to those last three short but oh-so-powerful exhortations of Paul to the Thessalonians. Can we put that, that next slide up? Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So, question is, Rachel, let's go with it. Why is it God's will for his people to do this? See what your neighbor says. Oh, I hate to interrupt. There's some good conversation going on here. I think it's about the question. But let's, um, let's talk about it for a minute. What do you think? Why is it God's will for his people to do these three things? What do you think? What's your, uh, what's your neighbor think? Is that a big deal? <laughs> we should rejoice always because we have been reconciled to God through Christ. Yeah. It sounds like you have a big view of God. I would agree, but that was good. What else? What else did you come up with? I think you're absolutely right. Because it's pretty countercultural. Teresa, Teresa, what are you doing back there anyway? Oh, yes, we have children back there and a granddaughter. <laughs> because we can. No fear that the Christmas tree will dry out if we buy it too early. Okay, let's just say amen, and we'll go home now. Good stuff. Anyone else want to add? A little different perspective or expand on it. Heather, huh. an emotional reset. Heather, as someone who lived in Oregon for a while, you know that when the sun comes up, is a big deal. Lots of praising and thanking for that. Yeah, good stuff. It, it, it is, it's... it's it's all about getting our eyes, our focus, our attention, our hearts zeroed in on who God is, what God has done. Ultimately, as those things begin to flow from our lives, as Stephanie alluded to, it, it, it becomes a light. It becomes, I would say, a, a proclamation to others that life, life is no longer about us as followers of Jesus. It's it's about Jesus. And I think that doing these three things with a, a sense of urgency and intentionality, which I, it is exactly what the spirit of the words that Paul is encouraging um, the uh, Thessalonians to do, will keep the Lord right at the center, or at least closer to the center, moving towards the center of our, of our daily radar screen uh, during the Advent season. Um, so I want to talk about these three things for just a little bit. There's, there's no rocket science here. It's just simple truth that, that, that I think challenges us to live life in this coming Advent season uh, to live as if the birth of Jesus, the first Advent, and the return of Jesus, the second Advent, to live as if those two things really are making a difference. And, and, and we're bringing those together in our minds through this Advent season and, and letting the truth of what happened 
in the life of Jesus and what will happen at the return of Jesus, let those truths begin to to shape our thinking and our response to this very busy and sometimes incredibly crazy season that is uh, shortly upon us. So I'm going to do the first and last ones, and then we'll come back to the one in the middle. So the first exhortation, to rejoice always. You know, Paul wrote similar words to the Philippian church when he said, rejoice in the Lord always. That's the source of rejoicing. For the believer, as Teresa said, it's because we can. Because we have the Spirit of God who lives in us. Our source of rejoicing is in the Lord. And that's what he has in mind for the Thessalonians as well. So let me ask you a question. Forgive me if this is one of those duh answers. Why did Jesus come to earth? And we're going to celebrate it on Christmas Day, right? His birth. Why did he come again? Dixie, could you say that a little louder? To save us from our sins. Are you sure about that? Okay. Okay. Jesus came to save. He came to die in order to save. It is, it is the fundamental truth of the gospel that we proclaim. For God so loved the world that he sent his son, that he gave his son to be a sacrifice for the sin of humanity. That for me is a clarifier. That sort of ties in to, to what Sharice is saying. So what is it that I worry about and what is it that I fear? And please, the temptation when I say something like that is, is for all of us to sort of think, well, yeah, guy, but there are important things to do on a daily basis. There are things to get done in this coming season. Of course there are. My plea for myself and for you is that we don't become identified with those things which are not the thing. The thing is the birth of Jesus led to a Savior who would die for our sins. Are you with me? Tim Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, offers what I think is an amazing definition for sin. He said, sin isn't only doing bad things. It is more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. And that's what we do in the Advent season in our preparation for Christmas when the frenzy takes us over and we lose our minds and we begin to hurry and scurry and worry about all the stuff that we haven't gotten done. We've taken some good things, some fun things, some special things, and we've made them ultimate things. Keller says, sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. Whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin is primarily idolatry. The first advent was an act of God that would lead to the salvation of people who could not save themselves. 
That is why Jesus was born. And, and my friends, our culture drives us to make Christmas about everything but Jesus. In all of those decorations that were in Costco, I didn't see a thing about Jesus. Now, you know I'm not an anti-culture person, but I want, I want, to, be, I want to be clear in this season so that, I, so that I arrive at the day that my Savior was born to die for me, I arrive at that day with a sense of, yes, this is awesome. Versus, oh crap, I forgot to buy this, or I forgot to buy that, or I wonder if the lights are still working because they often go out, and why didn't I get a new set of lights? Because I knew I had to. And Can you relate to that at all? Or is it just me in this madness in my head? Just me. Thanks, Sam. I knew it didn't apply to you. I just knew that. Oh, Karen, would you read that text from Peter for us, please? First Peter 1, 6 through 9. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Yes, yes. Peter opens that, that chapter talking about the wonder and the beauty of what God has done for us. And, and that was the, the statement behind the introduction in, in all of these things. What are all these things? It's, it's all that God has done for us. And in the immediate context, as you heard, has to do with suffering. Hard and painful stuff happens in the lives of God's people. We don't get a pass. We shouldn't think that we get a pass. Peter says to them that they are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy because they're receiving the goal of their faith, the salvation of their souls. What does it mean to be joyful always? I think it has very little to do with happiness. And sometimes that's kind of a splitting of hairs as well, but... And I think most folks tend to kind of camp on the idea that happiness is an emotion that is tied up in circumstances. If the interest rates on my savings account go up, I'm happy, which means in the present age, you'll never be happy. Um, if the price of gas goes down, I am happy. But what if I'm diagnosed with a potentially terminal disease? Am I happy? Well, personally, I've not been real happy about having cancer. But I can tell you, I have joy. I have great joy because the one who loves me and gave himself for me has secured my soul. Are you with me there? That is the source of joy, knowing what God has done. And trust me, we've got to rehearse that. We've got to rehearse it to ourselves. We've got to rehearse it to and with one another. Joy is a product that comes from seeing life and all of life's circumstances through the cross of Jesus Christ. The reason for the first advent. The baby was born to die. Joy affirms that we live in a fallen world. And yeah, we wish we could change a lot of things. But 
and this is huge, we understand that our eternity has been taken care of in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Therefore, I can be, I choose to be joyful always, rejoice all the time. Paul says, I read a story by a pastor visiting a man in his 30s who was, who was near death. And uh, he writes, Larry was a deeply thoughtful man. And as he spoke that day, slowly and deliberately, I realized I was hearing extraordinary things. I started scribbling them down in the margins of, my, of the bulletin in my Bible. Even if I only have a short time to live, Larry said, God has given me a great hope. Sometimes life throws us some tremendous curves, but death has lost its sting. He said, so, so then he says, we started talking about his funeral which as it turned out, would be exactly one month later. He told me he wanted lots of singing. I remember how in church Larry would put his head back and, and sing with such unabashed gusto. He said, the only thing I want people to think on that day is joy. And as he said this, he raised his hands to offer a slow, triumphant clap. When I pass into his kingdom, I envision this spectacular light, this spectacular feeling of being able to let go. Sure, I've felt a lot of grief for my children, for my wife, my family, even myself. But I've had to get over that. And once you get past that, you know that God is there. That spirit of joyfulness. It's going to be a great day for me. No, no grief. No grief for me at my funeral. Yes, I love that. And the second advent reminds us, brothers and sisters, that we've not been forgotten. The baby came and became the, the, the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God who died for our sins. And the second advent that the advent season also looks to reminds us that we've not been forgotten. He is coming for us. He will come and he will finish the journey that we have begun because of the first advent. And so the question I think we need to wrestle with is just how clearly do we understand what God has done for us in Christ? If looking at all of life's circumstances through the cross of Christ does not give us a sense of deep and unexplainable joy, then we've got to do some internal work with God. We've, we've lost sight of the glorious truth through perhaps giving ourselves to the lesser truths and disappointments of life. Use this Advent season to remind yourself of what God has done for you. Be intentional. Man, I would even say as much as I deplore legalism, be legalistic about it. Make a date with God every day at a time that works and be with him in his word. Be reminded of what he's done for you in Christ. Rehearse those truths. Know those truths. Let those truths penetrate your heart. Do it with a friend if, if that's helpful to you and encouraging to, to both of you. Don't lose sight of what God has done in this Advent season. Now the third ex exhortation, the second that, that we're at in, in order is give thanks in all circumstances. Doesn't it just make sense that if we see all of life through the cross of Jesus Christ, and we remember that it was his death and his resurrection that brought us into the family of God that we can trust him to guide and orchestrate the circumstances of our lives. That, to me, makes really good sense. 
It doesn't necessarily mean that it's easy, but it's something that I want to strive for. I think trust is really at the heart of giving thanks in all circumstances. Do I trust him? Do I trust that he's at work? In the words that Karen read for us to Peter's audience, do I trust that God is using circumstances in my life to refine and purify my faith, making me a more fit vessel for his glory in this life and for all of eternity. One commentator says this, no combination of happenings can be termed bad for a Christian because of God's constant superintendence. He refers to Romans 8.28 where God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. He says, we need to recognize that the trials are but a temporary part of a larger plan for our spiritual well-being. Out of this perspective, we can always discern a cause for thanks. There's always something to be thankful for. In fact, according to Romans 1, says this commentator, failure to do so is a symptom of unbelief. Whoa, that's challenging. And, and maybe, maybe you're living right now in a place where there's some unbelief. That, that's okay. Push through that. Push through that again. Time with God. Time with His people who will encourage you and remind you. Time in His Word to remind you. Push through the unbelief. I'm almost done, Lumi. I really am. Too often, I think we struggle with this exhortation because it's too easy to forget that we're living between the advents. The first advent secured my status as a child of God. The second advent moves me into the fullness of God's redemption and restoration of all things of which I am a part. It's not, I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet, but we're moving in that direction. Do we trust God? Do we know God well enough to trust that he is bringing us there? I think I've told you this story before, but I love it. Jill Briscoe tells the story of her little boy. His name was David. He was in grade school. He was told by his dad that he would be going to, that he would not, excuse me, be going to school on Monday morning because he was going to get an x-ray. All right, said David. This was on a Friday. Monday came. David dutifully goes out to the car. His dad notices that his face is as white as a sheet and his eyes are just like, you know, deer in the headlights. His dad said, David, you're not frightened, are you? Well, of course I'm frightened, Dad. Why, asked his dad. He said, because I know what an execution is. (laughs) Jill writes, that poor kid, he'd been thinking about this from Friday until Monday. The amazing thing to me is that he showed up. (laughs) But he only showed up because he trusted his dad. He trusted his father. We've got to trust our father. We've got, to, we've got to fight for trust. We've got to be determined to grow in trust. Learn to trust and live in trust. And then the second exhortation that Paul offers, and, and this is our third and, and last for the morning, pray continually. Pray continually. Let me tell you how this won't happen. You won't pray continually if you are a person who 
only uses a prayer list because at some point you'll forget your list. You won't have it with you. This won't happen if you're a person who ties all of your praying into your journaling because you don't always have your journaling. What did Paul mean by this? Paul didn't mean that we shouldn't make lists for praying. He didn't mean that we shouldn't journal, but he's saying prayer and your time with God goes beyond both of those things. I, I, would, I would say to remember Paul's words, or Jesus' words, excuse me, when he encouraged them to address Yahweh as Father. We've studied together the Lord's Prayer Paul reminds us that we've been adopted by God. Jesus invited his followers to address his father as their father. Paul says we are co-heirs with Jesus. We get to address the God of the universe as Daddy, Abba in the Aramaic, because that is who has become to us. This is outrageous. Now, one of the things, I probably shouldn't say this with Jeremy sitting here, but one of the things that I love about being together with my adult kids, is that they want me to be with them. They seem to enjoy having me in their presence, which is really a cool thing. I mean, they might fake it really well, but I get this, I get this sense that they, they genuinely like to, to share life with me. My friends, that's our God. If I can feel that way in my humanness and my fallenness towards my children, how much more does the God who, who loves us and knows us better than we know ourselves want time with us? And the thing that, that blesses me about the time that I have with my children is that they don't come to me with a list of needs, They pretty much take care of those things on their own. Once in a while, they ask my opinion or advice on something. That's so cool. God, I think, takes great joy in us coming to him for him. To be with him because he is who he is. Don't hear me saying we don't bring our needs to the Father. Of course we do. But if that's the only kind of praying that we do, then it really truncates the relationship for which we have been called into. Does that, does that make sense? To pray continually means that, that we, are, we are walking throughout the course of every day with the awareness that our spiritual daddy the one who created us, the one in whom we live and move and have our being, loved us enough to send the Son to die for us. That Father is with us every moment of every day and interested in us. Wants to be engaged in conversation with us. I think it's important, and this may just be a little thing, I think it's important that we we remember that not everyone gets to call God Father. I mean, they can. They can call him Father if they want. But as I understand Scripture, it's those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus 
who have been given the right, the privilege, as John says in first chapter of his gospel, to be called children of God. Wow. We get the attention of the creator of the universe. Seeing life through the cross of Jesus, remembering that it was his death and resurrection that got us adopted into God's family, ought to breathe energy into our prayer life. Boy. Okay. Enough is enough. I need to work on this dimension of my prayer life because frankly, I think, and that's kind of why I saved it to the last, I sort of see it as this this middle piece out of which the other two flow as I get to know my father, as I spend time just with him and listening, just enjoying the world that he has made, rejoicing in my life because he has given me life. I think out of that relationship then flows the ability to rejoice always, to give thanks in all circumstances because I know, I know who my dad is. Do you enjoy God as your father? Do you spend time thinking of him as your father? Do you you spend time just being with him as your father? Again, I would say, for the days of Advent, become a legalist. Make a time and plan to be there. And, And if taking your journal helps and your list of prayer needs helps, do that. But... Maybe, maybe it becomes a, a risky adventure this Advent season. Just going to be there. Here I am. Just want to be with you. Just want to tell you how much I love you. And I just want to hear from you and enjoy you. What an awesome gift that is from us as, as his children. God doesn't need anything but he certainly, I think, out of his Father's heart, desires more of that from us. So may Advent be a season that prepares us to rejoice in the the incredible generosity of God to us. Made known through the birth of that baby, first Advent, all the way to completion, the return of that baby, now king and ruler of the universe end and completion of the story. So praise team, come on up and uh, lead us as we respond to these truths, basic truths this morning. Gracious God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we find once again a familiar Advent season closing in on us. My heart's desire for myself and for my brothers and sisters in Christ is that we will will mark it as a season to be a people who are working purposefully, intentionally at cultivating a deeper relationship with you to know you and to be more fully known by you. And it is our heart's desire that out of that relationship flows rejoicing always even when things aren't quite right leading up to Christmas 
when stuff just disappoints us or, or lets the air out. It's okay. It's okay because of who you are and who we are in you. And help us to be people out of our relationship with you who give thanks in all of the circumstances of our lives, even the very hard things, because we've learned to trust you because we know you and you know us and love us more than we could ever imagine. May this Advent be a season that fuels great joy and delight in your heart because your people are finding joy and delight in you. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.